When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're jolted awake, shaken, bolted from a bed, somehow moving in all directions. In the city outside, the sun has barely risen and the earth roars. An otherworldly, guttural roar, moving from the distance, rolling closer, faster, louder. Plaster dust clouds the air. Out in the streets, walls are breaking from buildings. What is this? Think, where should we go? Stay here, in this room, in this house that feels made of paper? Do we run into the madness? Do we grab the children and run? Get us together. Family, gather, gather, gather. The children are crying. Shh, shh. It's going to be okay. The screams of the city. Breaking glass. China smashing. It's downstairs. The building is creaking. Pipes are rattling. Popping. Grab the children. Let's go. A minute later, the earth is quiet again. No more roaring. But something else. Heat. Flame, burning, the smell of it. The dust is so dense, dizzying desperation. It's so hard to breathe. The earth has shifted, but the air stayed thick and still. We must leave. Hi, everyone. Time for another episode of American History Hit. I'm your host, Don Wildman. Thanks for listening in. Much appreciated. San Francisco in 1906 was a remarkable city in the United States. Consider the fact that only about a half century earlier, in 1848, at the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, the country had been ceded by a defeated Mexico most of Alta California, Upper California, that wide western territory of more than 300 million acres that would eventually be developed into nine U.S. states, including California, which officially joined the United States a few years later. For the next five decades, thanks especially to something called the California Gold Rush, it would become one of the most consequential areas on the continent. And San Francisco, with its ideal location, temperate climate, and golden-gated harbor, would figure centrally. It would become, for its day, a most progressive American city with modern transportation and infrastructure. It was demographically diverse, a center of migration, especially from China. 
In 1869, the railroad, so many of those Chinese immigrants had taken part in building, was finally connected at the Golden Spike Ceremony in Utah. And from that day onward, California and San Francisco would become the legendary destination it still is for so many today. And then it all crashed and burned, literally. On April 18, 1906, the city was jolted awake by a 25-second foreshock that was then followed by about 45 seconds of the real thing. The San Andreas Rift, it would later be called a fault, runs 800 miles north-south through California's Central Valley. That morning, it had suddenly sheared along its northernmost 300 miles, rupturing the earth and creating a powerful shockwave moving in all directions. This was long before the Richter scale had become the standard measurement for earthquake strength. But scientists today estimate, had that Richter scale existed, this would have been a 7.9 which is devastating, even by today's standards, never mind in 1906, when almost nothing man-made was sturdy enough to withstand such force. As a result, buildings and homes and streets crumbled, trapping people where they slept. As with all great earthquakes, aftershocks then ensued. The quake and the fires that followed, the city burned for days, leveled the city and killed thousands, and completely destroyed this version of the city forever. The San Francisco that rose from the ashes would be an even more modern and resilient metropolis that would keep on changing America and the world. It's a tragic and epically fascinating tale told in the 2017 book Seismic City, an environmental history of San Francisco's 1906 earthquake by the author Joanna Dill, a native Californian who teaches environmental studies at Pomona College and who lives but a stone's throw, well, a few miles away, from the San Andreas Fault. Brave woman. Welcome to American History Hit, Joanna. Thanks for having me, Don. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Before we start with this history, brief anecdote. A few years ago, I was doing a TV series, and I did one show about the 1906 earthquake, and we joined this crew from a local office in Hayward, which is in the region there, and there is a major fault line, and we're at this small intersection two typical neighborhood streets with our surveying equipment getting a reading of how much the fault line had moved since the reading of a year ago or so. And this woman who lived on the street asks me what we're doing because she just bought a house there. And she was completely shocked to understand that a major fault line ran directly through her property. I told her to call the, the real estate agency and a lawyer. But this is a way of life out there, isn't it? I mean, there are fault lines everywhere in the Bay Area. That's true. Yes. All of the Bay Area is close enough to either the Hayward Fault or the San Andreas Fault to certainly be at risk in the case of a major earthquake on either of those two faults. Your book is a remarkable study in all kinds of directions. Socially, scientifically, it's a really interesting and complete history of this moment in time. And I was really taken by this. Was my description of San Francisco correct as to what it had gone through for the previous five decades? I think so, yeah. It was an incredibly diverse city. It had grown you know, incredibly quickly. It was the eighth largest city in the United States in 1900 and you know, still in 1906, about mm -hmm. 400,000 people. I think the major thing that I would add, particularly from the perspective of the 1906 earthquake, is the way that so much of the city's development had involved filling in land along the coast, mm, making yeah. land. And then those were the areas that you know, became death traps, were the areas that were at highest risk in an earthquake because that new fill was far less consolidated, far less solid than you know, Rocky Hills or than you know, natural land. Anybody living in California learns the word liquefaction really fast. <laughs> it's always on <Yes>. the, <laughs> the local news. 
Another concept that didn't exist yet in 1906, but reading the <laughs> accounts, you can see the descriptions of what we now call liquefaction exactly where you would expect it. Yeah, it was the really ambitious uh, and understandably exciting <laughs> idea that you could make new land by bringing in fill and creating these more even waterfronts and so forth and creating real estate, essentially. And they did that everywhere in, in the world, let alone out in California. And no one really understood what an impact that would have when a really big earthquake hit, which is a big part of this story. Let's talk about the earthquake. April 18th, 1906. I described it as a sort of one-two punch. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, it is sort of quick enough, you know, that foreshock and then main quake that there wouldn't have been much time to, to react between the two. And then there were, you know, smaller aftershocks throughout the day that people would have felt. And, you know, 45 seconds is a very long time for an earthquake. <laughs> if the ground is shaking that long, you know yeah. it's a big one. That is nasty stuff, boy. You know, if you've been through any kind of earthquake, they usually last for a few seconds, you know, and they're scary that way, let alone for a minute of your life that it's all shaking around. And, you know, there's incremental differences, it seems, through the, all the Richter scale. But the truth is, each time you go up, it's this entirely different experience. Yes. Where, you know, the shaking is horizontal and it's just your whole life. Life is going through your, flashing through your eyes at the time. This was a worst case scenario in that it was uh, when people are sleeping, right? Yep. 7.9 magnitude and 5 a.m. in the morning. Bad news. Yep. Well, it's mixed on whether the time was good or bad because there were a lot fewer people out in the streets mm, than yeah. there would have been later in the day. There would have been more deaths in the streets if more people were out and about. There were definitely cases of, you know, fires being started by untended, you know, kitchen fires and things that might not have happened, you know, later. There might have, if there were more people awake. So hard to say if it's a positive or a negative to have it happen that early in the morning. Tell me about the buildings in San Francisco at the time. Are they mostly masonry or wood? They're mostly wood. More than 90% of the buildings were wood. There were some, you know, masonry buildings there were some iron buildings, different structures, but yeah, it's mostly a wooden city. And this also has mixed, obviously this is not great in the case of a massive fire, but wooden buildings are safer than masonry in an earthquake, unless you're talking yeah. about a, you know, a really well-built masonry building. And San Francisco, because it's developed so recently, relatively, has new systems, all kinds of underground stuff. And, you know, they pride themselves on this, what is going to become quite fateful, right? All the gas lines that are in the ground. Yeah, the gas lines were a problem. The water system, which is something that San Francisco had been sort of struggling with, obtaining enough water throughout its short history. How much were they aware of earthquake history out there? You know, when they built this place, I mean, back to the Spaniards, they must have been feeling shakes, right? They were, yeah. You can find in the early newspapers, the Alta California in the 1840s, the early 1850s, mentions of earthquakes and indicate this idea of earthquake country and even this sense that we're used to it here and, you know, people from the East are scared by these quakes. So similar to a dynamic that you could find today among Californians. Mm -hmm. And then there were two significant earthquakes you know, during these decades when San Francisco was developing, there was one in 1865 and one in 1868. These were actually on the Hayward Fault that you mentioned earlier, not on the San mm. Andreas. So they are really centered across the Bay and the East Bay. But there was enough shaking in San Francisco to cause significant damage, particularly on field ground. And you know, looking at the newspaper accounts of those earthquakes, there's very much an awareness of this disproportionate risk. They traced out you know, where the damage happened. They talked about never letting it happen again. And then they rebuilt in essentially the same way. And by 1906, there had been so much turnover in the population of the city and so much additional development since those earthquakes that certainly 
You know, San Francisco had that reputation of earthquake country. You know, old timers remembered these quakes of the 1860s, but I think the vast majority of people there were completely unprepared for a major earthquake. It's interesting to think of how preparation like retrofitting and so forth, which comes later on, is so driven by a federal government mandating it of state governments. It's it's interesting. Unless government gets involved, you just keep getting these things rebuilt the way they were built before and on a budget and so forth. And, and there you go. I think of the San Francisco, I think popular understanding is that the earthquake is damaging, but it's really the fire that does the, that's really the devil, right? It's that terrible three days or so that happen afterwards. Explain how that occurs. And there are different fires going on, right? Yes. So fires start all over the city. And my feeling as a historian is that you can't separate the earthquake and the fire. And there's various mm. practical reasons why people tried to do so in the aftermath, particularly insurance coverage, mm. um, which would cover fire, not earthquake. And then also this, this sense of reputation, right? That fires could happen anywhere earthquakes were seen as sort of unique to California or to San Francisco. So yeah. they don't want to scare away people from migrating to the city. So you talk more about the fire. So there's a couple of practical reasons why people try to distinguish these two. You know, all these fires started because of exploding gas lines, because yeah. of, you know, people tried to cook in chimneys that were damaged and then caught on fire. Oil lamps turned over, right? This is still an era, even though you know there's a fair amount of electricity in the city, but it's also still an era where there's open flame in people's homes in a way that in businesses in a way that we don't really see as much today. So it really starts all these different fires and in all these different places. And then, you know, they just spread with incredible rapidity. There's a famous one called the Ham and Eggs Fire in Hayes Valley, which is near City Hall today. Started when a woman, like you mentioned, attempts to cook breakfast, unaware that her chimney is damaged. I don't know how that works exactly, but, you know, something <laughs> catches fire in that chimney, I guess, and ends up destroying 30 block area around that area, including the Hall of Records and City Hall, you know, very consequential moment there. Yeah, for months after the earthquake, people had to cook on these kitchens in the streets until they could yeah. get all the chimneys inspected and repaired. So you have these amazing photographs of these street kitchens throughout San Francisco in the months yeah. after the earthquake. The estimation is, and maybe this is questionable, as given what you said before, that 90% of the destruction of this event really happens because of the fires. 25,000 buildings, 500-ish city blocks are burned. I mean, this accounts for these amazing photographs, which is the other unique thing about the whole event is that you have media involved for the first time in one of these things. And people are actually seeing what we're so used to seeing now, these devastated streets and people wandering and trying to figure out their lives. All that stuff is suddenly showing up in New York City as a photograph, I guess. Yeah. Well, media and personal photography, in a sense. This is one of the first cases where you know, people had cameras and had that ability to, to document it themselves. Exactly. More regular people. So yeah, there's a tremendous collection of photographs. Officially, 700 people are said to perish, but estimates are higher, much higher, you know, 3,000 and above. Every neighborhood is affected, but some more than others. Chinatown in particular. Was Chinatown located then where it is today? Yes. Explain how that neighborhood experiences this earthquake differently than others. Yeah, and, and Chinatown, yeah, it was located, you know, where it is today. It you know, suffered significant damage in the earthquake and then essentially total destruction you know, during the fires. In Chinatown, the fires were particularly exacerbated by very ineffective, bordering on criminal, probably actually mm. criminal, use of black powder to try to create fire breaks. 
But essentially, the man doing this was drunk. They didn't know what they were doing. It was a disaster. You're talking about firefighters actually using dynamite or powder, in this case, to destroy buildings in the way of fires, just like they do in the forests. Yeah, exactly. Trying to create a fire break, but they didn't know what they were doing. The policies were focused too much on protecting property, so they couldn't get ahead of of the fire far enough. And Chinatown particularly suffered from that. Yeah, yeah. But in my opinion, it would have burned... Either way, they weren't able to stop the fire in other um, in other neighborhoods where there was right. you know less of that. So I think that you know even effective firefighting ultimately probably would have failed in Chinatown. The biggest factor there is the lack of water, as we talked about with the underground water pipes right coming into the city are all underground, and the big pipes bringing the water into the city ran down the peninsula. One of them actually ran along the San Andreas Fault. That one mm. suffered something like 19 breaks, but the others broke as well. So there's no water coming into the city. And then within the city, the earthquake shattered pipes and you know broke all those like distribution pipes going to different buildings and homes. So the water that was in the system leaked out. So the firefighters were handicapped by so many things, but the biggest one was a lack of water to fight these fires. There were a lot of San Franciscans who didn't want Chinatown to be there. This was a useful situation in their case. Yes. And this is, I think, one of the the really interesting stories in the aftermath of the earthquake and fire, which is that many white San Franciscans, including political leaders of different factions, proposed relocating Chinatown out of central San Francisco. They wanted to seize this land and thought it could be you know, more economically beneficial for the city to have white businesses along there rather than, you know, to rebuild Chinatown where it was. And the Chinese successfully, obviously, contested and Mm -hmm. and fought this. And they used some really interesting alliances to do so, including, you know, Chinese government officials coming in. And here's a case where the fact that Chinese could not become American citizens as a legacy of the Chinese Exclusion Act and anti-Asian mm-hmm. racism, which was incredibly strong in San Francisco in 1906. But because they couldn't become American citizens, the Chinese government was you know, very prepared to get involved. The Chinese formed alliances with white landowners who rented the land in Chinatown to them. So they signed new leases. This was probably not entirely altruistic on the part of the white landowners because they could <laughs> charge a tremendous amount to the Chinese because they weren't able yeah. to live elsewhere in the city because of racial segregation. But the Chinese definitely you know, worked to maintain their foothold in the city successfully. And it's, I think it's a really interesting example of the way that a community that looks to be you know, really disempowered, that is facing all these obstacles was able to, to come together and defend their place mm-hmm. in the city. It is a tenacious neighborhood. I mean, throughout history, in all kinds of eras, that Chinatown, boy, does that deserve to be there. They fought hard to exist, and it's still there. I'll be back with more American history after this short break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. 
feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Why were medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants? Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. I'm reminded of the Chicago Fire, 1871, 35 years earlier. Hadn't San Francisco considered that kind of inevitability to American cities? Or did they just accept the possibility that this kind of thing might happen, never mind the earthquake danger? Yeah, they definitely were aware of it. And this was very much an era of major fires in American cities. Baltimore had burned in 1905. Mm. So fire was an urban phenomenon in a way that it's not so much in the 21st century, although it could change again. And San Francisco was known as an incredibly high-risk city in terms of fire because of all those wooden buildings we talked about. The wooden row houses that distinguish San Francisco today were already you know, present. So very closely packed structures, mm-hmm. narrow streets, high winds. If you've ever been to San Francisco, you know it's a very windy city. Um, so all of these factors... The hills that make it hard to get you know, water and, and fire trucks, which at the, this era were still being pulled by horses, you know, two, two, two parts of the city. So all these factors, you know, made it at high risk for fire. And people were actually probably more you know, worried about that than they were about earthquakes. But, you know, there's only so much they can do. But they did have a very modern version of a fire department, didn't they? Yes, they were proud of their fire department. And San Francisco had suffered a a series of fires in the 1850s, five or six, I forget the exact number. So after that, they had, you know, gone from a volunteer fire department to a modern fire department and had worked to maintain that. Yeah. I'm fascinated by a theme in the book, which is that this whole area, the the Bay Area, which has suffered a lot of struggle, you know, naturally that other places haven't, has tended to make these kind of spasmodic leaps of culture. You know, it almost informs the whole region and contributes to it culturally and educationally. It's a crucible is what I'm trying to say of sort of modernism, because over and over again, they've had to react to this kind of challenge. Did that figure into your thinking writing the book? It did. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting balance because there's a lot of ways in which things didn't change that much. 
after mm. the earthquake, in which there's a lot of continuities, right? Labor conflict is going on before, and then it happens after. <laughs> Criticism of the Chinese is going on before, and then we see that play out in the recovery. But then, yeah, there are other ways in which they do try to you know, seize an opportunity to modernize. But then there are the cases of continuing to make the same mistakes, like building on made land, creating new made land. And there's always tensions there in rebuilding after disaster, I think, between sort of an idealistic idea of we're not going to let this happen again versus the practical reality that people want to rebuild, you know, as quickly as they can. They only have so much money Mm -hmm. to use to rebuild. They want to get their businesses back going. They want to get their homes back. So again, there's this, you know, really understandable and I think, you know, difficult to navigate tension between we don't want to let this happen again and we need to get the city working again, right? Even today, I mean, something happens back then that sort of resonates through to today, which is this class struggle that's such a big part of life everywhere in America, never mind, but in San Francisco for sure, with a huge wealth disparity that existed then. And actually, I am fascinated by the Pacific Heights neighborhood is a direct result of the earthquake. Yeah, the class implications, I think, are really one of the patterns that we see in 1906 and that we see after so many other disasters, you know, into the present, and particularly in San Francisco, you see that disparity developing. So in the initial aftermath, the fire was pretty indiscriminate in its destruction. Like the mansions mm-hmm. of Nob Hill burned, as well as, you know, the boarding houses of Chinatown or the boarding houses south of Market, where, you know, the working poor lived. Um, the fire was so powerful that, you know, very, very few buildings were able to stand up to it. But of course, the wealthy were quickly able to, you know, relocate across the bay or find other, you know, places to live. So you had an initial class unity as there were, you know, 250,000 people out of that population of 400,000 who were initially left homeless. So there's a tons of people who need food aid, who need assistance. But, you know, the wealthy, the middle class are able to get back on their feet, you know, much more quickly. So it you know, becomes the working poor who are left homeless, you know, through the summer into the fall. And that initial unity then degrades into greater class conflict, into, you know, these tensions over who deserves what in terms of aid. And you saw very much in the tradition of class organizing of of San Francisco and of this era, the people left homeless who, I'm going to go ahead and use the term refugees, which became a very controversial term after Hurricane Katrina. But at the time, that was the term that people used and that they really accepted. They organized as the United Refugees. So those refugees, you know, fought for their share of the aid, fought for relief in different forms for, you know, places to live, for assistance. But you saw these class divisions really become exacerbated by the disaster. Was this a moment of governmental change? Did the state government step up and create new kinds of responses to this kind of stuff? Not too much. The federal government did. Like Congress quickly voted more aid than had been voted to, you know, in the aftermath of disaster before. But yeah, not too much government involvement. You do see the Red Cross coming in. You see different sort of familiar forms of relief. So when San Francisco finally gets back on its feet again, how many years have transpired? I mean, how long did it take them to recover? It does take years. You know, some things are put back together, you know, relatively quickly. There was a World's Fair in 1915, the Panama mm. Pacific International Exhibition. They really used that as sort of a celebration of the city's recovery. They were able to rebuild pretty quickly. So a lot of insurance money that came in actually might have triggered the Panic of 1907, which was a, mm. a recession because of that sort of a huge shift in money yeah. as a result of insurance company payments in San Francisco. But it's kind of a side story. It took, again, varying amounts of time for different people, particularly, you know, the working poor struggled 
struggled for a long time and struggled to find, you know, stable places to live, you know, stable jobs to get back on their feet. A 7.9 earthquake is a huge shake. That's as big as it comes, right? The big one that's coming, they keep telling us, it'll basically be about that same size. Yes, that's as big as we would get on the San Andreas in California. You do have bigger ones, you know, in Alaska. There are other fault systems that can produce bigger quakes. But yeah, right. this was the, the big one for the San Andreas. I mean, you're a native California, very familiar with all of this. You wrote a book about it. How much are people reflecting on the 1906 earthquake as relevant to what might happen today? I think not nearly enough. It's interesting in California and, you know, having lived here at you know different points in my life over several decades, we haven't had a significant earthquake in California since Northridge in 1994. Mm -hmm. Before that, there was 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake in the Bay Area. And I think that earthquakes, again, are starting to slip out of people's awareness and that they're not thinking about them and that risk anymore. But just wait when it hits. My God. I went through that Northridge earthquake, but I was in old Hollywood which is not liquefaction properties. And so it was kind of a minor experience for me. I remember a box of pasta fell out where, you know, in Northridge, it was a horror show. And so it can be a completely different experience, even within the same city. And so often many of those people just choose to move on and forget about it a month later. Here's this horrific thing that can happen. But that didn't compare to what's down the road, you know, and 1906 is the model for all of that, which comes after you know, thinking about 1989 and Loma Prieta, whenever the next earthquake happens, there's going to be expected damage, you know, the damage that people foresaw, and then there's going to be the unexpected thing. So in Loma Prieta, a section of the Bay Bridge collapsed. The Cypress Freeway in Oakland collapsed. Cypress Freeway had actually been retrofitted, obviously not effectively. So there's going to be these damage that we're not going to be prepared for whenever the next earthquake happens. And this is the challenge mm -hmm. with earthquakes is there's really no warning and you just have to you know, react as best you can, I think. There is a lot of retrofitting that could happen. And one of the problems in California is it's largely left to the local level, to the city level. So wealthier cities have done a much better job of retrofitting you know, than poorer cities. So that those disparities, I think, again, we're going to see whenever the next earthquake comes, we're going to see those disparities come into play. It's pretty scary how blasé people get really fast yes. about earthquakes. They hit fast and they're forgotten fast. And that reality will only make sense when you're actually going through it. It's a weird cycle that human beings choose to go through. Yes. And that's why I think the history of earthquakes and natural disasters in general is so important to know and to talk about to recognize, you know, the next disaster is not unprecedented. These do happen. They're part of living on this, you know, geologically active, disaster-prone planet. And there are lessons that we can take from the history, you know, from 1906, San Francisco. And the craziest thing of all, it could happen in a minute from now. You have no idea. That, to me, is so fascinating about the Bay Area. You have to live on your toes subconsciously. And I've always felt like that under scored literally <laughs> the culture, you know, and has contributed a great deal to the activity in the area, you know, just a mental activity, never mind everything else. It both is a positive and a negative that's going on at any given time. Joanna L. Dill is a native Californian, as I said, who earned her BA from Stanford and her PhD in history from Princeton. She teaches at Pomona College. Her book is Seismic City, an environmental history of San Francisco's 1906 earthquake, and I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating read. Thank you, Joanna, for joining us. Thank you so much, Don. It's been a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.